Hello, and welcome to Cloud Insiders, a podcast that brings cloud down to earth. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Cloud Insiders. This episode, we're looking to unearth the things that people may not consider before an automation project. What automates the automation? Today, I'm joined by Paul Davey and Sam Perrin, esteemed members of the extrovert cloud automation practice. Uh, Sam, you look vaguely familiar. Have I seen you somewhere before? Well, some of you may know me as the host of uh, Cloud Insiders. But no more. I've been uh, removed and now I have to attend as a guest. So. <laughs> removed is such a strong word. I believe someone's workload became a little bit too busy for us. Yeah, no, yeah, I used to host. I helped you host the uh, Cloud Insiders podcast, but now I'm lucky enough to be a guest, so it's good. Oh, thank you for using the word lucky. <laughs> uh, so, as I mentioned, my name is Stuart Robinson. I'll be your host for today on this discussion, Lifting the Veil on Automation. <laughs> If you can keep laughter to a minimum. <laughs> right. We've done an episode before about VRA and VRO entitled Rather Rather Room. So have covered off a bit about automation. But as a brief reminder, can you remind us of what automation is and what it looks to achieve? So automation, the point of it is to remove issues that crop up historically through um, activities that are done manually by people. So, you know, we all make mistakes, we all get things wrong. So automation is repeating a task consistently every time, hopefully with the right outcome, sometimes <laughs> not so much. Um, so that's what it's there for, really. It's just, as it says, it's automating repetitive tasks. Yeah, get rid of that human error and yeah, just make it quicker, I suppose, to some extent. Frees up people to do other things. Um, so as mentioned earlier, we've spoken about VMware's automation offerings, but what other tools are out there? Loads, absolutely loads. Um, but they all do different parts of the automation thing, really. So you've got tools like Puppet and Chef and Ansible. They're like configuration management tools. So let's say you had a, a Windows server or a Linux server. Inside that server, you want to have a certain set or certain configuration. So you use those tools, put them on those servers, and you'd kind of build out your your playbooks or your um, cookbooks if you're using Chef, which is which is the layout of the programs or the settings of the programs or the settings of Windows or Linux components. And you can use those tools to deploy a new machine and, and put those on, or you can use it to enforce it. So if you've got developers who are constantly changing things in the server, if you've attached one of these playbooks to the server, you can use one of your configuration management tools to enforce those settings. So if they're turning off the Windows firewall or a Linux firewall or changing ports here and there, use this tool, bring it back into what it should be within your environment. So it just keeps stuff in line and, and as it says, manages, manages that configuration. You've got tools like Jenkins. I don't know, Paul, if you've used Jenkins before. If you, you can speak a bit yeah, about Jenkins that. Yeah, Jenkins and <clears throat> there's a few others out there as well um, that do this continuous integration and continuous delivery. So the idea is, is that each time you've, you've built some piece of automation, you can have that code automatically built, checked potentially, and then deployed into a test environment or pushed all the way through into, into production. And really it helps if you've got multiple people working on the same project, delivering pieces of code for the, you know, as part of a bigger workflow, for example, or a bigger automation piece. There's lots out there, Jenkins, Team City, it's a whole, whole bunch of them. <laughs> yep, um, you've got, and you've got tools like Selenium, which is for your web-based testing, isn't it, really? So if you've done a website, you can 
literally record macros in your browser and if you wanted to play that back using Selenium and you can just automate your web tests, your web-based testing. So if you, every time you did a website release, you went through the same process of clicking button X, Y, and Z, um, making sure you get certain responses, that kind of thing. You can automate all of that as well. So there's tools which can do the whole, the whole lot really. They've all been integrated with, you know, sort of like the Jenkins and your Team City. So you commit some code and then you can have, you no know, historically, you know, in software development, you'd have like unit tests. So, you know, if, if I send in one and one, does it equal two? You know, you can test the things. But um, things, you know, like Selenium, that they can be introduced as well. So they can fire up web browsers and do the kind of user interface testing. So uh, you can get true end-to-end -end, uh, testing done there <coughs> automatically as well. And we're seeing some of these things being introduced now into automation for you know, infrastructure as a code and other things like that now as well. Yeah, coming on to that infrastructure as a code, you've got, obviously you've got AWS. So they've got cloud formation. Um, everything in AWS has like an AMI, like a certain key or a code. You can build all of those things into these templates, these cloud formation templates. And once you build that out, you can literally take that, that code and paste it into a different environment in AWS. So let's say you built it all out into, into London and you want the same environment over in Sydney or somewhere or Tokyo. Take all of that, paste it in, run it, and you're going to get all your servers, all your networks, everything created for you automatically using these templates. So yeah, put a bit of effort into doing that, and you can yeah. just fire it up anywhere. And that, that yeah, and that kind of thing is perfect for dev and test environments. So you've you've got production, you've built out your cloud formation template, you chuck it over into dev and test, and you can just yeah, within I don't know however long it takes, you'll, you'll have your the dev and test environments ready to to go. It just makes things a lot quicker. And then I suppose you've got coming on on, on the infrastructure point of view, you've got guys like HashiCorp that we're looking at at that moment, they've got enterprise and open source offerings. But within that, you've got um, tools for provisioning. So you can provision your, your virtual machines. Um, so they use a tool called Packer, which you can build out, I suppose like a virtual machine template, isn't it? Build out a template and you put your, your software or your settings on it and you can pack that machine or package it up to then deploy that to Azure, AWS, your VMware private cloud, everything all through one kind of tool basically so it reduces that whole effort around having to manually do it it automates that whole the whole packaging piece but they've got tools for security running applications as well um, and there's apis for all of those so you, you, if you've got something like vro you can interface with that and you haven't got to use those tools directly you yeah. can just pull it all through your automation product there's tools like that from hashicorp but really pushing automation now as well because previously and historically you know you'd have I mean going back the years of automating a desktop or a server build for Windows and then maybe one on Linux you'd have one guy in the organization who would know how to do a scripted build for Windows and one who could do the Linux and then you've got people at HashiCorp now you know years on where we're looking to automate things and you know it doesn't matter what the target infrastructure is going to be Sam said you could you could build out you know servers and you can say I want it to have this much memory and I want it to have this much CPU and these bits of software but then you can just say and I want to land that on AWS I want to land that on Azure you don't have to keep recompiling it does it for you you know it allows you to potentially have one automated workflow deploying anywhere so it may be you want to stand up your production environment or some of it on Azure for example but maybe for test and development you want to mimic that and it's cheaper on AWS 
So you can just have one thing that's basically pushing to both. Yeah. Um, so you don't necessarily need that AWS expert and that Azure expert in that instance, as you would have done years ago when it was a Windows guy and a Linux guy automating those. So. Just need your HashiCorp expert. Just need your HashiCorp <laughs> yeah. expert, which is us. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of mentioned like there's a load of tools doing like the configuration thing, a load of tools doing the user experience stuff. Where does VRA and VRO sit in that kind of categorization? I guess that would be more around like the front end, I suppose, and from a VRA point of view, is, is more the front end. So people would log in, they would see the VRO, VRA sorry, portal, and they can request the service they want. VRO is then the interface to all those services. So you've got VRA connected to VRO, and then VRO connected to whatever you want, Chef, Ansible, AWS, HashiCorp. Um, so VRO is the, the doer. I suppose, and, and, and VRA is the, the thing that looks pretty for the user. Yeah. Um, yeah. In simple terms, there is, there is a lot of functionality in VRA, so you can, you can create your blueprints, add in your functions that you need. And obviously, there's, there's a tight integration with all the VMware services like NSX and that kind of stuff. But yeah, ultimately, we use VRO heavily. Yeah. Uh, just because it's so flexible and extensible, we can, we can anything with an API we can talk to. And yeah, that's, that's not one of those marketing lies either is literally the case anything yeah anything with an api we, we can talk to and do something with and then yeah yeah it's it's flexible really and that's how they all that's how those two come into it really from 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 how, the way we're using it so kind of vro talks to all the tools and vra <coughs> talks to the user so pretty much yeah yeah, yeah. vra gives you a consumer portal yeah kind of your online shopping screens yeah or self-service as they call it um so yeah you can yeah, log in, request a server or request whatever you want. Yeah. So, yeah, it's good. All these tools, I mean, and VRA and VRO, they, um, where they all sit in the stack, what's the kind of minimum requirement of infrastructure you need to get started with automation? De depends what you're trying to automate, ultimately. You've got automation tools and solutions and frameworks that will help you deploy an infrastructure. So, <clears throat> you know, at a minimum, um, you know, you might have a couple of boxes sitting somewhere that's running some tooling that's going to deploy, you know, a whole infrastructure for you or enough infrastructure to get started. And then once that's built, you may have another automation tool that's going to deploy your guest operating systems, your server operating systems inside of that. You might have another one that's then going to put the applications in it. And ultimately, as you build through that stack and you create it, and you can link them all together with something else. So uh, it, it, it really depends on what part you want to automate. Yeah. Um, if you've got an existing uh, infrastructure, then you know, you're looking at things maybe like Puppet or VRA, VRO. If you've got nothing and you're starting from scratch and you're thinking about how am I going to deploy ESX servers, physical you know, Windows, Linux boxes on bare metal, and then there's other things like Razor by Puppet Labs that's there for that that can then tie into Puppet and Ansible and other things later on as well. So uh, there's, there's definitely a, an automation tool for every, every bit step of the, of the stack. Day. Yeah. <laughs> It really depends on where you want to start, but there's definitely something out there for everyone. Yeah, definitely. And if, if you're comfortable, I suppose, using Windows or Linux, um, you haven't not necessarily got to look at another tool like Razor, like Paul said, or one of the HashiCorp tools. You can, you can use PowerShell or Bash. So let's say you're deploying a Windows box and you're changing all these settings every time you log in to deploy it for a user. You can script all that in PowerShell. Yeah. Um, and so... You deploy your Windows box and then you copy in your PowerShell script to do the settings you want. That that is automation. 
Yeah. Really. So you can start at tools like PowerShell and Bash. From a VMware point of view, you've got PowerCLI. So it's 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 a module or a plugin which goes into PowerShell and it helps you automate some of the VMware functions so you can deploy a new host or a, you can add a new host into vCenter using PowerCLI. Um, you can add new data stores, that kind of stuff. That's all automation. If, you're, if, you, yeah, if you can create a script from it and just run that script over and over, you're automating something. It's, it can be yeah, as simple as that, really. And we did a um, Tech Focus episode a little while back with John Med, the creator of the Power VRA mm-hmm. module. I believe that's along the same lines where you're essentially automating a little bit of VRA using PowerShell. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I think uh, I've not really looked into John's tool, but I think it exposes certain elements from VRA into PowerCLI or PowerShell, like you said. And yeah, you can obviously then create a script around that to do things in a repeatable process. Beautiful. So you guys are overseeing projects end-to-end, and I'm guessing no two projects are ever going to be the same, but what are the challenges that you have to overcome most often? The goals are different. So projects might be trying to achieve the same thing. So they might want to, they might want to achieve the, the, the goal of automating server deployments, but the goals behind that are different. Um, obviously, every company is going to have different processes. So company A is going to do it this way, company B is going to do it this way. Yeah, they are different. And then but behind the scenes, the way we're developing is we, we split our workflows into small actions, don't we? So we, we can take all of these smaller pieces of code. And the way we work is you can, in theory, drag and drop all these small pieces of code. So the goals are different there, but the outcome is kind of the same. So we can use the way we've developed to our advantage by pulling in these little bits and achieving the same outcome. But challenge-wise, I guess it could be things down to companies not even knowing their process. I finished a project recently where I had three guys in the room and we whiteboarded the process they wanted to automate, which was which was deploying a virtual machine. Three guys in the room, I think two were in the same department, one was in a different department. Every single one of them gave a different view on the process. So when you're then trying to whiteboard, it makes it more of a challenge because no one actually knows what they, what they need to do to, to get the goal, to get, to get the outcome. So... Yeah, that's, that's a challenge is, is getting people to think about the actual process. Um, and I suppose how we do that is we've got, we pull out the success criteria, don't we? So we, we kind of look at what the workflow needs to do throughout the workflow to, to make it a full success. So that could be create the server, set the memory and CPU, turn the server on. That's your free success criteria. All of those need to succeed for the whole workflow to, to succeed and be complete. And then we look at the inputs, the outputs, that kind of stuff. That, yeah, that, that is a challenge is, is getting that information out of them because they've not had to think about it in that way before. And quite often as well, it's seen as like a technical project inside the customer. Yeah. So you, you know, you kind of get there and on, on day one, you know, they're kind of, okay, so we need to deploy virtual machines and we're going to have this much memory and that much CPU, et cetera, et cetera, or these apps. And really the first kind of question, you know, that we want to ask is how do you do it now? You know, if it's manually, you know, do you have change control processes, things like that you need to go through? Where does the automation sit in the business process? And I think there's an expectancy that obviously it's going to be a technical conversation, so you often don't necessarily have the right people in the room. Or as Sam says, you have people with differing views because they're down working in the weeds in the technical part of it. They're not aware of the business process on top. So that can be quite challenging as well because um, ultimately, you know, you can automate anything. But... If you're not actually automating the business process successfully, then it doesn't matter if the workflow succeeds or fails. It doesn't work with the business. 
So um, we spend quite a lot of time, Sam said, workshopping up front and, uh, and asking a lot of questions and making sure that the, the success criteria are absolutely spot on for what the business requires, not just necessarily the, the technical guy who's in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a case of being strict about it as well, isn't it? So if we, if we were talking about deploying a server, we, fo- we focus on that. Like we, we, we don't deviate. So if they kind of give you a, a success criteria which really doesn't fit into that workflow, we, we don't care about it. We make, we make note of it, but ultimately that's going to be a different workflow because if you think about every single thing that has to happen and whatever, I don't think you'll ever get anything automated. You kind of need to be strict about what you're trying to do. Uh, there's, no, there's no harm in breaking things up into a smaller chunk. Yeah. Because ultimately that makes you look more flexible. So then you can use that little segment here in a different workflow rather than if you built the workflow to include everything, you, you're going to be stuck in the future yeah. because if you change this, you have no idea what it's going to do. Yeah, going to have a effect in yeah. several billion. Exactly. So it's like, yeah, it's a case of being strict about what you're, what the process is you're looking at and focuses on that really. But as well, coming back to what Paul said around the, the business process or the business logic, that is something that stumps people as well, isn't it? So mm. it's one of the projects we've, we've been on is is they, well, this, this is their, their idea was they would log into the portal and from this selection of servers, choose one of these servers and get whatever outcome they wanted on this server. That's the process. But what they didn't think about on the business point of view is what's controlling the stock of these servers? How, how do you know what is in stock? Well, how do you know what servers people can choose from? That's all the business logic stuff that is overseen, uh, is completely forgotten about sometimes. So that's where these workshops come in handy is because we make you think about what prerequisites there are and what needs to be in place before anything happens. So for a user to be able to choose a server to, to deploy to, someone needs to do something to keep that stock up to date. So they, if that server meets has to meet certain criteria, build that into your business logic, do something which keeps the database live and active really. So it's always ready for the person to consume. Because um, if not, you someone if if you put ten servers in there, and you get ten people deploying stuff, that's it. That's that's the end of, of that workflow. It can't be used anymore because the stock isn't up to date. It's kind of just a dead end before you what, even start. What happens when two users, you know, can they pick the same item from stock at the same time? Then you have got two requests of the same thing, you know. And I mean, one of the other things was placement as well. Mm-hmm. If you've got multiple data centers, or you've got multiple pods of resource in a data center and you want to try and balance deployment of applications or services across them how do you do that if you've got a user who's just selecting something you know and quite commonly they go well we'll have a look we'll log into vCenter or whatever the portal is for whatever tool they're using see which has got the most resource free and then put it on there you don't want your user selecting that kind of stuff they're just going to see the first thing that's in the drop down list and use that one so you're not you're not going to start balancing out these things and so there's when we say business logic, it's things like that. And a lot of the time, it's just taken for granted because you do it as part of your job and you don't think about it. And some of it's just common sense, but you have to agree the rules that define that to enable you to automate it. So these these are the things that don't often get thought about before the engagement start. Um, and these are the questions that keep us awake at night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically, yeah, I mean, to wipe out all these challenges further down the line, before you start, you need 
a set process and you need to have thought out business logic to work out like every possible scenario which you know that sounds really easy (laughs) it's when you're gods like us it's it's definitely um, the phase of the project where you're providing lots of hugs and pats on the back and it will be okay because uh, (laughs) you know it's, it's kind of day one when you pull the pin from the grenade and say well we won't be automating anything this week because you know, you need to decide how your business is going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, is your business process, what you've got there, can it be automated? Mm-hmm. Is it just a bit of it that can be automated? Is it an opportunity to update the business process? Um, and uh, if you've got a room full of techies, then uh, <laughs> they're not necessarily yeah. the right audience, you know, yeah. so it's, it's a challenge. Yeah, and, and the biggest difference as well is it's, it's now not always techies that are going to be consuming those workflows. Yeah. So like the example Paul gave, on the drop-downs around placement, a techie would be quite happy to choose that placement because they're aware of where it's going and what is behind the scenes. For a normal, for a user um, who hasn't got any awareness of the infrastructure, yeah, they are going to pick the first thing. So yeah. you need to look at those rules and, and figure out those rules to make it a lot easier for the consumer. Yeah, if to, I was doing to, it, I'd turn to the person next to me, ask them how they did it, yeah. and then, you know. Yeah. And, and you don't want that, yeah. copy and paste. Yeah, you don't want that in the automation. You want to kind of make things a bit quicker and easier for the person, not create them new challenges. You want to, yeah, just streamline the whole thing and, and reduce that human error. By, by having an option for placement, if everyone places it in location A, you're going to run that capacity. And that's what you want to avoid with, with this sort of automation stuff is, is yeah, you never error. Basically, you always kind of get what you want. Yeah, striving for perfection. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of challenges. Um, they are all different. The goals in a project could be the same, but the way they're achieved is, is ultimately different. From a development point of view, the way we work is is really modular, so we can be flexible to whatever those goals are, and we can kind of get the, the outcome as needed. So. I like that you've brought up modular. So... Um, <laughs> This is going to be one of the hardest ones to to answer, but is there kind of an average amount of steps that you might have in a workflow? Is there like an average amount of workflows you'll have per project? I mean, how vast can these things get? No, it it really does depend. I mean, if you you took simplistically, let's say you had a requirement from a customer to build one workflow to deploy a virtual machine, install some apps and update it, for example. that wouldn't necessarily be one workflow. There could be three workflows there doing different things all linked together because then you've got some reusability later on. Um, so, you know, we, we could engage with a customer and they may say, we want 14 workflows to do these things, but we could end up writing 50 um, because we want them to be able to, you know, reshape and, and adapt those as the business changes yeah. later on. So, it you know, you really don't, you really don't know. No matter, no matter how many questions you ask and, and how hard you try, um, until you until you get in there and really, you know, look under the bonnet, you're not gonna you're not gonna know. Yeah. So it's literally how long is a piece of string? It is yeah, how long much is a piece of string, yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah, another another example um could be creating creating a new user in Active Directory. So to do that, if you're doing it in the GUI, the minimum stuff you need is like a full name, a username, and a password. Yeah. Pretty simple. That's that you could, if you're lucky enough, you could do that in one call, send all that information in, and you get your user. But when you dig into the process, what you realize is that username needs to follow a certain format. So it has to be the first name, dot second name. The password 
you might never want the user to specify that. So it's got to be automatically generated based on certain criteria. So X number of symbols, uppercase, lowercase. Then it might be a case that the email address needs to end in a certain address depending yeah. on what business you're in. So, and then you've got security groups as well. So again, depending on the business unit, they're going to get placed into certain security groups to give them access to certain systems. So that, that simple process of creating a new user has now, in the process of a, a two-hour workshop, actually grown massively in terms of what is actually required behind the scenes. So yeah, as Paul said, you, you break all that into different smaller workflows. So the password generation, you're going to put that into a smaller option or a smaller workflow because you could use that anywhere. Yeah. You could use that in your virtual machine creation. For example, you might create a user by default and you could use that same password thing. You're a group addition thing. You could you can separate that because you might want to update an existing user, not just a new user. So yeah, it's, it is literally how long is a piece of string. It could, it could be anything. Um, and that's the importance of, of these, of the workshops that we've spoken about a few times is it highlights all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, it brings all of that stuff out into the light and yeah, lets people know what is actually, what actually needs to go on to get yeah. the outcome of a, a user. Is it, they're not, they think it's just going from point A, going to point B, but you know that it's actually going to point A and B past yeah. one, yeah. two, three, four, five, six, seven, yeah. eight, nine, but ten. In it, so you also need to have error handling. So if you're, if you're deploying a, let's say we're, we're going to create you as a user, you put your full name in and then we've generated a username. What happens if that already exists? Yeah. Do we error the workflow and, and just simple, can, simply cancel it? Or do we give the user an outcome? And to do that, we simply append like a number two at the end of the username. And then the user's still got an outcome. They've still got their user. Yeah. But it's, it's just slightly different, but it's all been handled. So error handling is another thing that comes into it is, do you want that or not? Yeah. <laughs> um, what happens, yeah, what happens if... Uh, as well, we've got customers that we've dealt with who, you know, like most businesses, um, you know, the, the people, they may already have a, an automation product like VRO, VRA, and they've been tasked with automating things. And because not necessarily through any fault of their own, the time poor, because everyone's busy these days, you know, and we're all expected to deliver more, um, they, you know, to achieve the goals that they're set, they'll start off with all the low-hanging fruit. So they'll go for the workflows that are defined as being the simplest, and they'll build them out as one long workflow, and they'll keep doing that. And then three months down the line, you know, there needs to be some level of flexibility in one of these workflows. And it's then very complex, and they haven't got the bandwidth to, uh, to look at it. So then, you know, we'll kind of have to go in and, and really review how they've built these workflows or these automation scripts. Yeah. And at that point, still hold the workshop, even though the, you know, the workflow is already there, just to review it, work out what the new requirements are, and then start breaking it down. So that, that's another thing that we see that's quite common as well. So your perfect outcome is for the end user to really have no idea that any of this is going on in the background. But as far as steps concerned from the client's initial asking, there is just could be any number of points on the stairway to success. It's, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. there is just, yeah. We don't want the customer or, you know, in terms of from our point of view, if there's a portal in front of somebody then um, you know the, the best result is that somebody can go to that portal, request using the bare minimum of information required, whatever it is that they need, and then it, it arrives. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah. So they'll never see the amount of steps, but the client will ever ask for that number of steps at the beginning? They try and ask for the, sort of the effort, don't they, involved, but really until you've done one of these workshops, it's hard to put a definite number on it. Yeah. You can kind of give it a t-shirt size to some extent. So let's say user, someone does want a new user or a new virtual machine, you can kind of put it in the, the small t-shirt size. So we reckon it's going to take X number of days to, to do all of these things, development workshops, integration and testing and stuff. But yeah, ultimately, until the workshops are done, you, you don't know their process. You don't know what's actually involved. So yeah, it, it's hard to put a number on it straight away, but you can kind of, from an experience point of view, put a, a number against it from what you've seen previously. Um, so I guess you can, from a, a consultancy point of view, caveat that to some extent and say, this is what's going to happen in this in this workflow. Yeah. Um, I think the thing is, conversation starts around a workflow and what was, you know, um, deploy a virtual machine becomes deploy a virtual machine with this app or that app yeah. to here, to yeah. there, with these settings, with that. And the more people you've got in the room, the more ideas you get showered <laughs> with and you've got to try and keep them on track. So, uh, yeah. So, like, in these workshops, what, do you, what kind of questions should be a CTO be asking themselves to scope an automation project, you know, what, and what things might they be missing? I think probably the first, the first question is why. Why do you want to automate anything? Like, why are you doing it? You know, is it a driver for efficiency? You know, is it consolidating, you know, operations teams into smaller teams? Or, you know, I mean, there's multiple reasons for doing it. It's quite important to understand that. And I think as well, quite often, there's a lack of understanding that when something's been automated, if we've gone in and we've written some workflows and we've handed it over, whoever we're handing it over to, they need to have skills in that automation product as well. It's not do it once and forget it. You still need to maintain these things. So I think, you know, why are you doing it and how are you going to maintain it? And what's the benefit going to be over two, three, five years, however you want to count it, you know, not just the immediate term, but what's the longer term view. There's a lot of automation products out there, you know, as we said, and you, know, you really need to think about these things. You can get tied into one or another that may yeah. not fit where the business is going in the next two, three years. Just get a helicopter view of what you want, really, I guess, and then uh, yeah. look down on it all and you know, build out your roadmap pretty much like any other project. So the future... Is everything going to be automated? Can every process be automated? Or more importantly, should every process be automated? Where do we draw the line? I mean, is Skynet the limit? <laughs> I don't know. It's, well, it's, we, we were having a conversation the other day, actually, weren't we, um, around the Google and the, the restaurant, finding the restaurant to make the, the restaurant appointment. So some Google Assistant on some Android phone, the guy added a reminder into Google and said, can you phone up this restaurant and book a reservation for this date at 2 p.m. Yeah. And his phone called the restaurant to have a conversation with the restaurant to book this appointment. But it wasn't the guy phoning, it was yeah, the Android phone. assistant. And if you hear, if you listen to this conversation, it's, it sounds exactly like a person. The, the person was asking, the, the restaurant um, booking person was asking questions to the, to the Android assistant. And the Android assistant was working out what to reply with and it was scary to see it because that conversation was so kind of smooth and fluid yeah that yeah i don't know you, you you could automate everything but do you 
you know, like you said, do you do you or should you automate it? It's kind of I, I, automation is awesome, but I don't think everything needs it. I don't think you need to boil a kettle in the morning automatically because you still got to go down there and pour it out anyway. So yeah, some things are pointless, but I don't know. I think it would all change to some extent. I think there's things as well that need a like a personal touch. You still want to talk to a person. You know, how many times over the years have you rung your bank or somebody and it's the automated telephony service, yeah. <laughs> press one for this and you're left in telephony hell Yeah. and you can't talk to a real person. Yeah. Yet for some reason, what would be a common request of information from you isn't covered by the automated system, you know, and you get frustrated and, you know, there's a time and place to automate. If it's going to give you increased efficiency, if it's going to save you money, if it's repetitive tasks, that's a great use case for it. You know, you can point people at a different task and make them, you know, look into things, maybe more strategic things for your business. So yeah, definitely time and place. Um, one thing's for sure, we never want to automate our jobs because uh, <laughs> we automate, like our jobs. Automate the automators. Automate the automators, that would not be good. Yeah. <laughs> it's making a joke about the automating the automators, there are tools and software we use to take a piece of code and transform it into a different piece of code for a different system yeah that to some extent is doing a lot of the work that we would normally have to manually do so automation's already infringing on your jobs is what yeah. you're saying <laughs> don't tell anybody yeah. <laughs> anything you guys would like to add about automation um i guess as a final point i just just yeah think about your processes including your business logic think about that that, that whole thing needs to be thought about before you look at doing your automation really um, you need to be prepared as a business to to go at it if you try and just do stuff really piecemeal I don't think you're going to get anywhere get us in to do these workshops get us to help you and yeah just just kind of go from there really yeah Sam says think about it from a business point of view if you're you know an operator of, a, of an environment if your role is technical and you can automate things you do that's great because efficiency goes up but if you can get somebody higher up the chain in the business, you know, a C-level person thinking about it and looking across and then down. There's a lot more things that can be automated, a lot more things that can be integrated with and the whole business will benefit. So think about it from the top down. Brilliant. Well, guys, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you titans of automation. <laughs> um, if anyone else would like to get in contact with you, possibly ask you some questions, would they be able to? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, they can talk to the automated version of Sam or the yeah, automated yeah. version of me. <laughs> yeah, you can talk to my... Talk to my AI assistant, that's fine, yeah. Yeah, Twitter, um, which is Sam underscore Perrin, or through my um, extrovert email address, which is sam.perrinextrovert.com. Mr. Yeah. Davey, are you happy to...? Yeah, via, via email is best. So paul.davey at extrovert.com. Perfect. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank awesome. you so much. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cloud Insiders. To find out more and to listen to additional episodes, go to cloudinsiders.fm. You can follow us on Twitter at Cloud Insiders and subscribe on iTunes. Catch you next time.